Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. So one of the first things that we're taught as little children in the world, one of the first words or terms we're taught is yucky, right? And we use yucky to delineate between something being clean or sanitary and something being unclean or unsanitary, right? We point at something when we're teaching kids and say, no, 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 that's yucky, that's yucky, right? And this is a really important differentiation because yellow snow cones are yummy, but yellow snow is yucky. You might not be able to tell the difference at first glance. Gum from the package is clean, but gum from under the table at the restaurant is not clean. We used to call that ABC gum. Does anybody remember ABC? What does that stand for? Already been chewed. Yeah, that's ABC gum. Birthday cakes are great and delightful. Urinal cakes are not. And just a pro tip, never tell your kids they are called urinal cakes. To this day, my youngest still goes into a public bathroom. He'll immediately head to the urinal and say, are those the cakes? Those are the cakes, right? Yes, they are. But they're yucky. And learning what is yucky and what isn't is meant to help us stay safe. Urinal cakes, ABC gum, yellow snow, and other things, they can make you sick. And we should stay away from them. But here's the problem. Tragically, we have taken this concept of things being clean or unclean, and we've applied it to people. We've made people clean or unclean, good or bad, in or out. And this, what I would call evil phenomenon, is often called a purity test. And we've seen some extreme examples of how they're applied throughout human history. On September 15th, 1935, the Nazi party in Germany passed what became known as the Nuremberg Race Law. The first one, there were two, the Reich Citizenship Law allowed only, quote, racially pure Germans to hold citizenship. The second one, called the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor, made marriages or sexual relations between people of German blood and people of non-German blood illegal in order to preserve purity, the purity of the Aryan race. Second one, in the 20th century American South, many states passed purity laws centered around something called the one drop rule, which asserted that any person with even, quote, one drop of black blood was considered, quote, colored and forbidden from intermixing with the white population in a myriad of ways. Now, we hear these stories today, and we are rightly disgusted. We are rightly angered at the evil behind them. But the truth is, many of us are still applying purity tests to our fellow human beings all the time. All the time. We classify people when we meet them, even subconsciously, as clean or unclean, good or gross, in or out, based on things like age, race, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, political affiliation, background, belief, and a myriad of other things. I was actually taught a version of purity testing in church growing up. 
See, I was told that Christians were holy, which meant that we were set apart from the rest of humanity. We were a different classification of person because Jesus lived in our hearts and we had been made pure. Other people didn't have Jesus in their heart. They were impure, which had all kinds of implications for who we were allowed to associate with, who we were allowed to be friends with, who we were allowed to go to people's houses or not, date or not. This idea of Christians being holy is not without biblical precedent. The verse most often quoted is from Peter, one of Jesus' oldest friends, closest friends, who ended up leading the very first church in Jerusalem. And this is from a letter he wrote to members of various first century churches all over the ancient Near East. He says this, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. That's 1 Peter 2.9. Followers of Jesus are holy, and we are meant to live by that holiness. Earlier in that same letter, Peter says it like this, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So we as Christians are holy, and we're supposed to be holy in all that we do. And again, this word holy, it kind of literally means, translates to being set apart. So we could very easily translate these words from Peter like this. Followers of Jesus, you are to be set apart. So be set apart in everything that you do. Now I can see some of you like uncomfortably shifting in your seats right now. Depending on how you grew up, this concept, this understanding of holiness can be really triggering. I was actually at our restore group on Wednesday night. I was talking to a friend, um, and she's on our worship team, and so she'd seen that this week we were slated to talk about being holy, and she looked at me with some faint terror in her eyes and said, are we really doing that? Are we really talking about that? And I get it. Because like way too many other Christian concepts and biblical terms, holiness has often been weaponized to hurt and exclude and marginalize and oppress people. But what if we've gotten holiness all wrong? What if being set apart doesn't mean what many of us have been told that it means? So with the rest of our time together, I want to explore those questions and explain why I think getting holiness right matters so much. But first, let me step back and frame this conversation about holiness inside of a larger conversation we've been having here at Restore. So back in August, we started something called our Year of Healing and Wholeness. And this point of this is that we realize it's been a tough few years. It's been difficult to navigate. And even in the midst of joy present in a lot of our lives, most of us are feeling some combination of tired and anxious and overwhelmed and distressed. And we aren't exactly sure what to do about it or how our faith can help. And so that's why we're spending this fall and spring diving deeply into how we can experience healing and wholeness, both as individuals and collectively as a church family. And it all starts with, it is undergirded by the foundation of it is understanding who God is and who God says we are. So we spent six weeks talking about God's identity to open this year and his, his identity as a divine being who is six characteristics that he lists off, loving, compassionate, gracious, faithful, forgiving, and just from Exodus 34, this self-description God gives us. And now we're in the middle of six weeks talking about not God's identity, but our identity. And we're unpacking these often overused and underexplained terms used to describe Christians in scripture. 
Two weeks ago, we kicked off the series by looking at how we are beloved. What does that mean? And last week, my friend Zach McCoy talked about how we are unified with Christ, in union with him. And this morning, we're going to discuss what it means to be holy. And I'll be honest, like I've said already, this one has a ton of baggage, maybe the most of any of these identity statements we're going to look at. I think about the common phrase, holier than thou, right? That's applied often to people who think they're better than everyone else, religious or not. Sometimes we call people holy rollers. That's a little more old school, but I like it. Holy rollers are often people who never stop talking about how their faith is superior to other people's faith. But as I said earlier, it goes much deeper than that. Many of us have been told that Christians are meant to be holy, set apart from the rest of humanity. We are pure and non-Christians are not, which means we must set ourselves apart from them. This theology has all kinds of real world implications, like the purity tests I mentioned before, but also like Christian-only communes and compounds that have been constructed under the auspices of this theology, cults that have been started, people that have died. Another one, back in 2015, a very prominent televangelist named Kenneth Copeland was raising money to expand his fleet of private jets, not purchase his first private jet, expand his current fleet of private jets. And when asked why he couldn't just fly commercial, he said he didn't want to, quote, get in a long tube filled with a bunch of demons. I mean, I've, I travel sometimes in the area. It's not that far off, but. No, I mean, it, he, he said that he was called to feel holy. He's holy, set apart from everyone else. And so he needed a private jet, another, a second, I have a third, private jet, to be further set apart. I once worked at a church that not only housed a sanctuary on its 40-acre campus, it had a Christian school, a Christian coffee shop, two Christian bookstores, a Christian gym, a Christian workout facility, Christian athletic fields with Christian little leagues, Christian camps, and even a Christian restaurant. One time I asked the pastor why we had all this stuff, and he said, Christians are called to be set apart from the rest of the world. I just hope that we can get a grocery store in here soon so that our people never have to be around secular people again. Can this really be what it means for Christians to be holy and set apart? Are we called to separate ourselves from anyone who believes differently than us? Are purity tests and Christian-only grocery stores really what God wants from us? I certainly don't think so. And I bet most of you don't think so either. We hear these examples of holiness and we are repulsed by them. We find them to be ridiculous and harmful and awful. But this idea that Christians need to be set apart from the rest of the world is not fringe theology. This does not just belong to people like Kenneth Copeland and cult leaders. This is mainstream stuff. Many of us grew up in churches, denominations, even families that were all about being set apart from the world. But here's the thing. What if holiness doesn't mean being set apart from something? What if holiness means being set apart to something? What if holiness doesn't mean set apart from somebody, something, some issue? What if it means being set apart to something? 
You see, in modern Christianity, we have been mostly concerned with being set apart from, set apart from non-Christians, from immorality, secularism, sin, atheism, and the like. But the biblical authors and Jesus himself are much more concerned with what we are set apart to. I love how New York pastor Rich Velotis says it. He says, in our minds, holiness is usually about what we abstain from. But Jesus saw holiness as what you give yourself to, namely justice, mercy, compassion, love, and hospitality. In the end, the holiest people are the ones who love well. Now, we are certainly set apart from some things, too. God made it clear to Hebrews in the Old Testament that they were to be set apart from harmful practices that were common in their culture, things like child sacrifice, perpetual war, etc. And God asked the same things for us today. We are to be set apart from practices that hurt ourselves and our neighbors, things like economic exploitation, greed, violence, racism, sexism, and all the other oppressive isms. But the way of Jesus, y'all, The way of Jesus is not primarily a checklist of things we are supposed to avoid. The way of Jesus is a life marked by virtues and practices and postures that we are called to embody as we abide in Christ. Virtues, practices, and postures rooted in our God who is love. In what became known as the Last Supper Discourse, this was the final time of teaching we have recorded before Jesus dies on the cross, he tells his followers what this abiding and embodiment looks like, what it means to be set apart to something. John 15, starting in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me as I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Because I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them will bear much fruit. Remember the fruit part. We're going to come back to it in a second. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So five times in two verses, Jesus tells his disciples and us by extension to abide in him. And when a word like that is used as many times as it was in rapid succession, we need to pay attention to it. So what does it mean to abide? Well, in the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson translates it, he translates the abide in me as I abide in you like this, live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. This is the union with Christ stuff that Zach McCoy preached about last Sunday right up here. It is this minute by minute reliance on Jesus. And Christ invites us to abide in him, to rely on him, to make our home in him, just as he has done with us. And then he tells us what will happen if we do that. Whoever abides in me and I in them will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This message of bearing fruit as we abide in Christ is central to Jesus' teaching throughout his life. In Matthew 7, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruits, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, what is this fruit that Jesus keeps talking about? Well, thankfully, we don't have to wonder or guess. Scripture enumerates it for us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. My friends, this is what it looks like to be holy. These are the things that we are supposed to be set apart to. 
And it's not just true of our holiness. This is true of God's holiness too. We just spent six weeks talking about how God's holiness means that God is set apart to love, grace, forgiveness, compassion, faithfulness, and justice. So when God says, be holy as I am holy, it means be set apart to those things too. I am set apart to these things. So should you. I want to go back to the verse we looked at from 1 Peter earlier where he calls Christians a holy nation. Because like I said before, this verse has been used to make the claim that Christian holiness means we should be set apart from the world. But when people make that claim, they very strategically, I think, show you only the first sentence of that verse, like I did a second ago. Here's the whole verse. Look at it with me. You are a chosen people, a royal, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. What does Peter say the point of being a holy set apart nation is? To show others the goodness of God. We aren't set apart from our fellow humans. We are set apart to declare and demonstrate God's goodness to everyone that we meet. The author of Hebrews says something similar. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Eugene Peterson translates verse 15 like this. Make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. I love that. We are called to be holy, which looks like doing everything we can to make sure no one misses out on the grace of God, no one misses out on the goodness of God, no one is left out of the generosity of God. This is the point of holiness. Being holy is about what we're set apart to, not who we're set apart from. Being holy is about what we're set apart to, not who we are set apart from. As followers of Jesus, we are set apart to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are set apart to grace and generosity and forgiveness and compassion and justice and radical inclusion of all people. We are set apart to be helpers and peacemakers and embodiments of God's love wherever we go. So how do we do this? Well, I think now that we have a better understanding of holiness, one that doesn't lead to isolation and arrogance, it's time to talk about how we put being set apart to all these beautiful things into practice. Well, it's kind of a cheesy play on words, but if we want to be holy, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I apologize for that. In that same Last Supper discourse we looked at earlier, Jesus talks about what it looks like to abide in Christ long after he has died on the cross and and risen from the grave. Jesus says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. That's the union stuff again. 
But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. Jesus is going to leave them, but he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to live not only with them, but in them. And to remind them of all the things that he has said and done throughout his life. To be these, this little voice within us that's whispering the way of Jesus. The way of being set apart to love and all of the beautiful things that go along with it to us constantly. And Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as his spirit. And says that through it he will indwell every believer. Jesus is in us and we are in him. Again, our union with Christ. I think one of the most amazing parts of all of this is that Jesus says having the Holy Spirit is actually better than having him stick around in the flesh. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I've said this many times before, and I'll say it many times again. This is Jesus making the claim that the only thing better than God with us, the incarnation of Christ, is God within us, the Holy Spirit. The only thing better than God next to us is God indwelling us. And as we learn to trust and rely on our union with Christ, as we abide in the Holy Spirit within, we are being transformed into people marked by this holiness that we've been describing. The Apostle Paul says something similar in his New Testament letter to the church in Corinth. He says, now, this Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. This is the process that we are all in as we learn to rely on the Spirit of Christ within us, as we learn to listen to the still, small voice that leads us toward the way of Jesus. And I want to make one final point before I wrap up this morning. Sometimes, especially with the weaponized version of holiness that many of us were taught, being set apart can feel like it, it goes against the very foundation of who we are, of like what it means to be a, a human a good person in the world. It can feel exclusive and arrogant and, and othering and gross. But when we rightly understand holiness as what we are set apart to, not who we are set apart from, it actually transforms us into what humanity was always designed to be like. People marked by love and joy, by peace and hope, by justice and generosity and so much more. We are never more fully ourselves than when we are being transformed by the Spirit of God into people marked by holiness like this. We aren't being set apart from our humanity or from other humans. We are being set apart to what being human was always supposed to be like. So let's be holy people, people who are set apart to love, to everything else that comes with it. May that be true of me and you as individuals, but may it also be true of our church. 
May people in our communities, in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world, see this community and think those people are set apart. Not set apart from everyone else, not doing their own little thing in their own little space and exclusive and othering and arrogant, but set apart to love and justice and goodness and generosity, seeing to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I am overwhelmed by your goodness, your goodness in the world, your goodness to us. And I pray that we would take seriously this responsibility to be holy people, not set apart from others, but set apart to love and everything else that goes with it. May that be what we are known as. May that be who we are seen as. May everything we do reflect you and your goodness and your love. Make that true of us, God. Help us lean into that as individuals and as a whole church family. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.